Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the television writing panels at Nerdist Industries at Meltdown Comics in Los Angeles, an informal chat about television writing and the business of writing for television. My name is Ben Blacker, a television writer and co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio. Find out more at thrillingadventurehour.com. Tonight, we have a phenomenal panel uh, who have been involved with some of the best, most influential, um, and biggest television series on TV in the past 25 years or so. Uh, so I'm going to run through their introductions uh, so we can get to chatting with them. First up, you know her from such shows as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, The O.C., Gilmore Girls, Dollhouse, Battlestar Galactica, Ellen, Caprica, a Game of Thrones, which is the upcoming HBO show, Torchwood, she's also the co-creator of Warehouse 13, Jane Espenson. Hi. Hi. Speak into that a little bit so they can hear you. Hi, uh, I, I thought I did. Good. Right. <laughs> I couldn't. Next up, you guys, he's worked on Queer as Folk, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, The O.C., Dexter, Star Wars, The Clone Wars, Caprica, and currently he's on Warehouse 13, Druzy Greenberg. <laughs> when you come in because you think you're coming in at the yeah. front of the room and then you're not. <laughs> Enjoy it, podcast listeners. <laughs> Behind the scenes stuff. Should we do a description of it? Is it for the a podcast? description of yourself. Oh, really? Yeah. Hi. He's, he's tall, charismatic. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely handsome. And, um, uh, that's, just, that's all I need. Yeah? Oh, good. Okay. Hi there. <laughs> podcast listeners. It's going to be freewheeling tonight, you guys. Uh, our next panelist... <clears throat> Won an Emmy. She's an Emmy winner for her episode of Mad Men, or one of the episodes she wrote of, about on Mad Men, uh, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, uh, which, if you guys don't remember this episode, it escalates the uh, scene between the uh, relationship between Don and Betty after they broke up. But it's also memorable uh, for the scene in which Roger loses the Honda account. Remember? <laughs> uh, welcome, Erin Levy, please. Hi, Aaron. Say hi. Hello. I want to slide that over and find a few more. Yeah. Okay, please. Uh, Hello. Perfect. That's exactly what she sounds like. Uh, and finally, you know him as a writer on Nash Bridges, Damon Lindelof. <laughs>
Hi, Damon. Clever. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> you guys, welcome, and thanks for being here. We're going to have a nice chat, I think. Uh, let's talk very briefly. I usually open these up with talking about how we broke into the business, but I think some of that is fairly uh, well-trod for you guys. So what I'd really like to hear about is, uh, what was the first thing you got paid for? What was the first thing you got paid for? Or what was the first thing that you really knew, like, this is, this is my big break. From here, there's no turning back. I don't have to work at Starbucks or Tudor or whatever it is. Those are both mine, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a lot about me tonight. Uh, I Jane. St- I still have the Xerox of the first check. Um, I uh, sold a premise to Star Trek The Next Generation, which was, here's $1,000. Your name will never be on screen, but this premise is going in our files, and here's $1,000. And at the time, I was living off a $12,000 a year um, National Science Foundation grant, so it was like, this is a month uh, that where I can do anything I want. Like, <laughs> this is a, free, a month where I can just go crazy, because I've got twice the amount of money as normal. What did you do? Did you go crazy? Who, who knows? I, I don't think I did, actually. I went, I went and I Xeroxed the check. I, that, <laughs> I Xeroxed it a thousand times. Really? When Jane, for when Jane goes crazy, it's a lot of, like, tie, take out noodles and stuff. Yeah, like, that's true. Yeah. I don't go crazy in a, in a lovely, self-destructive way no. that makes the papers, or even the Twitter feeds. <laughs> What was uh, the uh, premise that you weren't credited for? Was it like, uh, there should be a robot named Data who wants to be real? Because <laughs> that, that would have been a bargain then. Yeah. Um, actually, come to think of it, the first thing I sold was a story. It was, uh, they actually, I sold the premise second that they actually used. But the story I sold them, they never used. And it was a story about Data goes undercover on a planet that's had a Luddite revolution, so he can't let on that he's actually a mechanical man. And he has to pass for human and discovers he can pass for human, which is a big leap forward in his psychology of how he feels about himself. We just met, but I knew it was data-related. <laughs> <laughs> All of the, yeah. He's All of, a robot, honey. <laughs> that's true. All of, my, all of my pictures were about data. Every, every spec I sent into them was about data. That's true. Well, you're half robot, right? <laughs> On your mom's side? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Drew, how about you? Um... My, well, by the way, mine would have all been data, data related too, for, for what it's worth. Um, uh, the first, I think my first big break was probably uh, getting the freelance episode of Queer as Folk. But the first thing I got paid for was uh, when, I, when I, a couple of years after I got to LA, I started writing game shows. And uh, it was the most, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> most of the shows were canceled after 65 episodes, which usually proved to be bad for me, good for Western civilization. <laughs> um, but uh, that was my, that was the first, my first gig. How did you even get into that? I had a, I was taking a, a class at UCLA, UCLA Extension, and my, uh, I was taking a sitcom writing class, um, which I've put to so much good use. <laughs> um, and uh, my instructor uh, was also writing game shows, and he had found out about, one of his, one of his previous bosses had developed a show which was going to be half game show, half sitcom. So there was, which, I mean, if you think about it, how could that, how could that fail? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to watch that? Everyone, it turns out. Um, so he recommended me for that, and once I started doing Burt Ludden's Love Buffet, uh, <laughs> the game show world kind of opened up for me. So that was, that was my path for, for about a year. And how did you make the leap from that to that first uh, thing sold to Queer as Folk? 
I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I would I would do the game show during the day and then go home at night and write my specs just like just like anybody else. The game show was was it was a great experience and it gave me a lot of really good practice. I mean, for real. Um, and and it put food on the table and then it let me go home at night where I had a clear head um, and I could sit down and write my specs and I just hit everybody I knew with my specs until until I got the queer spoke job. Sometimes it is done that way. Erin, uh, how about you? I can answer both those questions with the same thing. Um, I, my first job and my first paycheck, uh, my first, sorry, my big break and my first paycheck was the season three finale of Mad Men, which... Uh, I, <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it happens that way, too. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Weiner had been a professor of mine at USC, and then he hired me as a writer's assistant on the show, um, and then asked me to write the finale with him. So, wow, that's awesome. That's I rejoice. And so you you should take that path, people. <laughs> uh, Damon, where'd you come from? Uh, I uh, basically had sort of a long and storied past um, working on the movie side of things as a development executive. And like most de development executives, ac actually wanted to be a writer um, and s sort of finally got around to it. So I sent out an email to all my friends, sort of like inspired by Jerry Maguire, um, <laughs> and, and said, hey, listen, I, I actually, I've been writing, I would probably written seven or eight really bad movies during that time. Felt like I kind of evolved to a point where I was ready to uh, make a run at it. And television was where my heart um, was because I just watched so much of it ever since I was a little kid. <laughs> said, anybody out there in the TV world, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll, I'll watch people's cars or pick up their dry cleaning, get coffee. But, you know, if I can just somehow be in the vicinity of television writers and sort of figure out how, how all that works, that would be great. My friend Julie, who worked for Kevin Williamson, um, this was sort of right after Dawson's Creek had taken off. He had developed a new show for ABC called Wasteland. They were staffing it, and she said, do you want to be a writer's assistant on the show? You have, but you have to start on Monday. It was a Friday. So I gave notice, and I, I said, sure, absolutely. And um, it, it was just – it was one of those perfect sort of um, right place, right time scenarios where um, essentially within about th three and a half to four weeks, every single writer on the show had been fired, with the exception of the staff writers who I had kind of befriended. And as I saw this happening – Everyone kept getting saying over and over again, they're going to shut us down because we're not going to have any scripts. Like, we're just going to... And I was like, maybe I should write one of these. <laughs> so I, um, I would work all day with those guys, transcribe my notes, and then I'd stay. And I started nocturnally writing a spec episode of Wasteland, which is easy for a show that only has three episodes that exist. <laughs> they haven't really kind of figured out what it is yet. And I gave it to these other writers and said, here, you guys, you put your names on this, but... I, if they, sh if they shut us down, we're all going to be out of work. And they liked it, and they gave it to Williamson and said, Damon wrote this, and he said, let's shoot it. But oh, my God. I don't, I'm still not entirely sure whether or not he's read it. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, he walked up to me, and I had, like, a little cubicle, and he said, do you have an agent? And I said, no, and he said, you better get one. And, you know, the next day I was in, you know, getting calls from the Writers Guild asking me for dues. So, that was, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was very fortuitous. Uh, what came after that for you, as long as we're down here? Um, well, uh, Wasteland basically got canceled after two episodes. Um, and uh, and so then... The one you wrote, did it air? It never did, no. Uh -huh. It aired in, uh, I'm, tol uh, I'm told it aired in South America. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but um, so the show got canceled by 
right before Thanksgiving, as I recall. And so from um, Thanksgiving until the following staffing season, there was no work to be had. And I had no television specs. So I spent that period of time, I wrote a spec episode of The Sopranos and a spec episode of The Practice, which were the two shows that I was kind of really obsessed with at the time. And then my agent sent me out. Uh, the first meeting I took was Nash Bridges. Um, and, uh, and I met uh, with this guy, Carlton Cuse, who ended up being my partner later on Lost, and this a gentleman, John Worth, who ran the show. And basically in that meeting, I, 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 they, they had sent me um, six videotapes. I, I don't know if you guys know what those are. <laughs> um, they're what existed before, VH, uh, before DVD. And, um, and I watched it, and I was like, wow, this show is actually much better than I thought Nash Bridges would be. And, um, and I think I can write it, like, and I would watch it. So I went in, and I pitched them a couple of ideas. And most importantly, they said... We're, not, we're interested in hiring somebody who we can really show how a, a show works. And having come from that, the experience that I'd just been in, where it was sort of Rome is burning from the word go. <laughs> it, it, this was the season six of Nash Bridges, and it was a well-oiled machine. They knew exactly what they were doing. So they offered me the job in the room, and I took it, which you're not supposed to do, but, <laughs> but I did. So that was, my, that was my next job, and that's really where I, I learned much of what I know about TV. That's very interesting. Uh, and while we're, I want to step back, step it back a little bit. Um, but getting once you're in that meeting to staff, because you guys have all been staffed on other people's shows, uh, in addition to to some of you creating your own. Uh, when you're in that staffing meeting, how do you play it? <laughs> how do you, you know, it's it's a job interview, but it's also more than a job interview. Uh, it's different than a typical job interview. Uh, you look like you want to jump in, Drew. Do you want to jump Do in? Do I? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I have to take care of that look on my face. You know, I, my experience was always, and I don't know if this is typical, but my experience was always um, by the time you get into the room to meet with the showrunner, they've read your work, they, they already know that you're, you can write, uh, and they seem to like what you can write. So at that point, it's really just showing them that you're not, you know, homicidal or or at least hiding the fact that you're homicidal and um, I mean I don't know if that's always the case but it certainly was the case with with the first few meetings that that I took and and it's it was actually for me very freeing because they really do just they did just want to know about me and I love talking about me so it was really really easy that's what I always call it the wear pants meeting yeah, like, this is the right. meeting where you they, you show up and they check to see if you wear pants in public and if you do you're probably <laughs> You might be all right. Um, Helpful hit there. But I have I have blown one of those meetings. You know, you go into a meeting and you're like, oh, this this should all be good. And I can tell you how not to do it, how to how to how to make them think you are See? crazy. Uh, I had a meeting at Friends, and I was I had worked on a bunch of sitcoms, and it was just like the brass ring. Oh my God, Friends! And I had come off. I was just coming off a show where I had been really unhappy, and I'd felt really ignored. And this was going to be like, oh, I can go at Friends, a sh you know, a show I could be proud of, and people that I know are good. And they asked me about my experience on the previous show, and I said, Oh my God, it was awful. Let me tell you, <laughs> they they ignored me, and I and I got quieter and quieter and shyer and shyer, and my my voice and 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 I realized at this point, like. I just talked myself out of this job. Like, I just described myself as someone who has to be treated with kid gloves or they fold up and, and stop pitching. It's, re it's really funny, actually, that you say that because the one time that I blew it, 
too was the exact same experience where I had reached a point where the previous job hadn't been great for me and I had gotten to the point where I was like, people know me, I'm a good guy, I can, you know what, it's time to be honest, it's time to be like, they're going to appreciate my honesty and I did the exact same thing and I said, well, here's why the last show sucked and yeah, that didn't go well. That's yeah, <laughs> always be positive, always be kind. Right. Kind of in life too. <laughs> That's not why we're here. Erin, <laughs> uh, you were brought in by, by Weiner, is that correct? Yeah. Did you still have to sell yourself a little bit? I mean, I guess after, after the finale episode was when I found out I was going to get to be a staff writer on the show. So I, I guess that was, you know, <laughs> that was me selling myself. I can write, I swear. <laughs> and he, he'd read something of mine previously, too, since he had been my professor. I rewrote a screenplay in his class. Okay. So he knew how I wrote and he knew my writing style and... There was, there was no meeting. <laughs> yeah. Tough. <laughs> um, as I said when introducing you guys, you all have been parts of these pretty big and influential uh, shows. How, how aware, and we'll start with you, Jane, because you've been part of a number of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, how aware of, are you of your show on the cultural landscape when you're working on it? Very. Even before... Internet and Twitter and stuff, you know. You know what Entertainment Weekly is talking about. You know what Variety is talking about. So you know if you're on a show that's that's making a splash, and you know if you're on a show that nobody's ever heard of. It's kind of surprising how much you can delude yourself into thinking that your show's going to do something. We were I was on a show called Something So Right. No one was watching it. Nobody cared. But we got invited to be on some daytime talk show, some Sally Jesse Raphael type talk show where we were in the audience and they, because they were talking about blended families and that's what our show was about. So they came around with the microphone and asked all, these are the writers of something so right. And they're going to talk about blended families. And you, you make experiences like that, make yourself, make you think that you're on a successful show. Um, But in (laughs) fact, if you keep your eyes clear, you have the same access to pop culture media as anyone else. So you, you, you know if, if it's working and you know if it's not. And I want to jump over to you, Damon. Knowing that you are aware of those outside forces, what's the atmosphere in the room? How does that influence what you guys are doing? You know, I, I, I think, you know, in the, in the, in the case of Lost, I had, I had been on Nash Bridges, and then after Nash Bridges, I worked on the show called Crossing Jordan, which was just sort of a, you know, straight-up procedural, successful, mm-hmm. you know, ran multiple seasons on NBC, but while Crossing Jordan was on, I was obsessed with shows like Buffy and Angel and Alias, um, and J.J. Abrams was very much on my radar. So when, when, I'm, when I suddenly found myself in a scenario where I had never met him to, you know, on a Friday to on a Monday night, we were writing a pilot together, I knew instantly <laughs> that this thing was going to be in the, in, the, in the crosshairs of the pop culture radar because it was JJ. And so at first there was a huge comfort in it because it was JJ Abrams and the other guy. Like, it's like I, you know, I can't name any of the other band members of Pearl Jam other than any better. So, you know, my anonymity gave me sort of a certain degree of like, well, you know, even if this is the most uh, catastrophic failure in the history of television, which anyone who knew me at the time will tell you I was saying, it was, it was still, it's fine. It's J, it was JJ's show. Why were you saying that? It just, um, it just, it just felt like it was a recipe for disaster because it was, um, it, 
we were doing all these things that you weren't you weren't that were against the conventional wisdom to do in terms of serialized was such a dirty word, especially in the network business, mm-hmm. and, and and an even dirtier word was genre. And then the idea that we wanted to do nonlinear storytelling, and they were saying if if someone misses an episode of Lost, you know they're gonna they're not gonna be able to jump back into the story. And we were like, yeah, right. And, <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> So, you know, there was a certain sort of degree of audacity to it. And the guy who was basically our godfather, this guy Lloyd Braun, who said, he was the one who said, here, I'm the president of the network. I believe in you guys. Here's $11 million. Go and shoot this crazy show in Hawaii. He got fired, you know, (laughs) about three weeks into production. So it was just, and, and, and most importantly, the thing that everybody was saying as we were shooting the pilot and even after they had seen the pilot, which is, This is a premise that cannot sustain itself. Like, plane crashes on island, what's episode 17, you know, let alone season two or season three? And I was in complete and total agreement with those people. (laughs) So what do you guys say to that? Because this is something, you know, we're beginner writers that we've run into. What is the next episode and what's, what happens in the season? What happens episode to episode? You, You know, I think that, on different serialized shows, they have their their there are there are different processes, and our and our process changed from the first season because I met JJ the last week of January, and then we de- we literally delivered a two hour movie, the pilot that everybody saw, the first week of May. So that all happened from the moment that I met him to us saying we're finished in twelve weeks. So the idea that we could actually have time to talk about anything other than those two hours that we were delivering was ridiculous. And then Carl- and then Carlton came on around the ninth or tenth episode, but it was just literally look look at what's right in front of you and do that. But I was panicking constantly because everyone around me was saying, you need to have a plan. You need to figure out what the long-range plan is. And then once the show premiered, that was the most depressing morning of my life when I got those numbers because it was like – oh my God, we're going to have to keep making these. <laughs> so, you know, all the fundamentals sort of brick lane started between the first and second seasons of the show, but it was once I let go of that idea of, there are two, there are two speeds in serialized storytelling. There's one speed where you're basically, you, can't, you literally can't break the episode in front of you because you don't know enough about what's behind it. And then that forces you, even though everyone's breathing down your neck and they're like, they're shooting this thing on Tuesday, that you say to all the writers forget this episode. We're now going to talk about the series and we're just going to talk about it for four days. And when you're in that scenario, that's the way it had to work over the course of the first year. Then when you get a little bit of breathing room, you can start to talk about the future. But then what happens is plans that you have often go awry and, you know, and some shows don't course correct. They just say, we're going to stick with the original plan. But if you are, aren't afraid to say this didn't work, let's stop even though we had like three episodes essentially broken behind it, they it's this road that we're on is failing. Let's go back in and, and start over. You know, that, that kind of became the process, but it took us a long time to, to gravitate towards that. I mean, it was just, it was all hands on deck. And I'm, I'm very curious to, to hear the, that the experience, cause you guys are all on, have worked on heavily serialized shows, um, you know, but that are much different animals. Yeah, I was going to ask Aaron. I mean, that's it's a it's a soap opera in many ways. Uh, who has an idea of the big picture? How do you guys work that in the room? Um, well, at the beginning of every season, Matt, our, our showrunner, comes to us with a sort of idea of what he wants to do for the season, and then we fit everything into that. 
for the the big picture, I mean, the end of it, I, I think I think he's kind of got an idea in his mind what what it is, and I, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> he hasn't shared that, um, but we do know every season from the very beginning what's going to happen um, before we start even breaking an episode. How about you? Oh, yeah? Go ahead. Jay. I had something to say to the the notion of being willing to course correct as you go along. That the the feeling that you have to stick with the original plan is is def can definitely be a mistake it can also be a mistake to course correct too much because because the tricky thing is that you can't just go oh well then the secret is be willing to adjust because i i feel i've been on shows where we uh adjusted ourselves out of a good plan that we had that we knew worked and we got and we and i was second guessing the choices so changed too much so the unfortunate thing about learning a lesson in tv is that Sometimes you learn the exact opposite lesson, and that one's true too. And it's, it's so there's so pay no attention to any of this. I guess. <laughs> Thanks for your money, everyone. No, you know you're absolutely right, and and because there are there are very often multiple plans in play. Mm-hmm. You know that is to say, you have a plan for a character, and they're going to have X arc, and then you have an arc for the season, and then you have an arc for the series. Right. And so it's you know the the higher up the chain you go, once you start start chipping away at the plan for the series just because a character arc isn't working right. that almost always results in complete and total disaster yeah. just bury them alive is my my, <laughs> my personal experience and the, the best yeah the best plan in the world can go awry if you realize oh this actor isn't up to it or this or, or production precludes it we simply can't pay for this set we, or, or that actor moved away or that set burned down or whatever it is and it's suddenly the big plan that's going to make this all feel like a novel that was planned from the beginning like that option goes away it's, it, unless you're David Simon right you can't right. do it <laughs> uh, Drew has, you've been on a number of these serialized shows too have you been a gun for hire on these where you've just done a freelance episode or anything yeah, the only time I was a freelance was on Queer as Folk. And uh, if there was a plan on the first season of Queer as Folk, I'm, I'm not sure uh, that they let me in on it. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, we, I came in just as the show was starting, and I think that some of the details were still being worked out. So my experience has always been getting to be a part of the process. It's been different on each one. If you work, I think Jane, Jane will agree, when you work with Joss, you, you know, Joss knows what the signposts are going to be that, that you're going to hit um, before you ever start. The, the experiences I've had since then really have been great in that I've been able to sort of take that experience and bring it with me to whatever show I've been on. And, and we have worked as a room on most of those shows, coming up with the signposts together, which to me is, is as much fun as anything else. Knowing what we're getting into, knowing the last scene of the season before we start writing the, the first episode. And that's something that I'm always pushing for. And I know the writers who, who are on Warehouse 13 also uh, push for that as well. And it's something uh, that I, I think I think that's what makes television different than any other medium is that you are unfolding a story over the course of weeks and months and years, and we have the luxury of being able to watch our characters evolve and grow. Why not know from the beginning where you want to go? And of course, sometimes when things do come up, uh, the set burns down. Although, what show did the set burn down? Oh, I don't know. That's awesome. Sometimes that, you know, of course you have the experience where sometimes that leads to something even better than you had in the first place, but at least having some kind of rudimentary plan is, it seems to be the only way, into my mind, to, to go into it, to go into a season. Uh, again, let's, let's take it back again a little bit to the beginnings of your careers, or maybe not the beginnings, but uh, I think people here are interested in representation 
And, you know, we've heard from panelists in the past few weeks that you really can't get an agent until you have work and you really can't get work until you have an agent. Uh, what has been your experience on this? Erin, we were talking earlier about it. Tell, tell the nice folks what you told me. Yeah, this will be really encouraging. I got an agent after I won an Emmy. Uh, <laughs> and it's out there. So, the there you go. Um, <laughs> and he's not very good. <laughs> he's lovely. Or she. Again, one way to do it. Uh, Damon, where, where were you in the career when, when representation came knocking? Or did they? Basically, when, when Kevin asked me, do you have an agent... Um, and I said no, and he said better get one. I um, I ended up having a lawyer negotiate my deal because it needed to happen overnight. He was the lawyer who represented the staff writers who who I had befriended. And then he said, why don't you why don't you take this time to meet you know kind of meet around. And at that time, you know, Kevin basically called his agency and so on and so forth. So I took meetings at um, at William Morris and Endeavor at ICM. Everybody but CAA wanted to wanted to meet with me. And I had some dinners and, you know, was, was sort of like living the dream because I th this whole idea of like, you know, finally I was going to get represented. And um, and this was all happening right before the in like the three or four days before the show premiered. The show premiered and basically all those people who had taken me out to dinner were like, we don't want to represent you. So it's going to be very hard for, for us to sell you. And then so we I was basically at a party for the show and I met um, uh, this guy, Ted Miller, who represented one of the other writers on the show. Who, uh, who had not yet been fired. And he and I kind of hit it off, and he said, why don't you come in for a meeting? And I came in for a meeting, and, and he and his partner, Peter, basically said, hey, listen, we can't really sign you. We can't really convince the higher-ups because this is a big agency, but if you write a couple of specs and they're good, um, we'll hip-pocket you, and, um, and we'll... we'll if you're able to staff, then we can make you an official client. And you guys so, all familiar with what hip pocket means? I know we talked about it a few weeks ago, but yeah, generally. It, it basically means like, you know, I will date you, but I will not call you my girlfriend. <laughs> like, I, it's, it's, like, I, it's like, I will call you at like 1130 if, if nothing else is working out. <laughs> but if you're good, <laughs> you can get married. <laughs> So they're still my agents to this day, and you know, and they they won huge points for not being in the opening salvo of people who rejected me. So you know, playing hard to get is uh, was part of the equation. I think. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, Jane. What was your experience? Uh, I had a few first agents uh, when I was pitching regularly at Star Trek: Next Generation. I signed with sort of a, a fly-by-night operation that represented other people who were doing that. Someone who then later lost their accreditation and was just discovered they were pocketing residual checks from their clients. Um, so when I got in the Disney Fellowship, I didn't have I didn't have any representation, and they set me up um, with to, you know meet with these people, and I got the same thing of being dined by a small selection of people, you know, but but more boutiquey places, you know, writers and artists and and paradigm like smaller places, and I sort of randomly picked one of them um, and that worked out great it's not the same agent I still have but it worked out well for the time is that something that was done as part of the fellowship that they would help you find representation I there were only three TV fellows in my year and they they only did it for me so I never figured out is this like a thing that they do every year for the best one but I mean this was 1992 <laughs> so I don't know I don't know if if what they do now 
We'll talk about fellowships in a minute, but Drew, what's been your experience? My, my experience was a little bit different in that when I was when I was slaving away on uh, a very, very, the very uh, acclaimed show, Burt Ludden's Love Buffet, um, uh, I, I was uh, still trying to, like I said, I was working really hard on my specs and just showing them to everybody that I knew. I, when I moved to L.A., my dad had a business contact whose daughter was also in L.A., and she <laughs> said, I will help you meet people if you come volunteer at the organization that I help run. Uh, so and that was a, a group called uh, Camp Heartland, which runs a camp for kids with HIV. So I thought, awesome, I can use that to my advantage. Um, <laughs> I totally did. Uh, so I donated, donated my time. Uh, as it turns out, you, know, you got to do a lot of really good work and meet a lot of people who were in the industry. And there was one awesome guy named Scott who wanted to be a manager. He wasn't yet. He was working as an assistant. I don't generally think that writers need managers, especially when you're starting out. But for me, it turned out to be the right thing. Scott said to me, he read some of my specs and he said, I think you're really good. Uh, I will, if you let me take you on as a client, or as his only client, I think, uh, uh, I won't charge a commission if we if we sell anything. And I thought, I can't go wrong there. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's perfect. And Scott actually did, he was really trying to practice and he, he really hustled and he ended up showing my scripts to a, a guy that he used to work for named Richard Kramer. Richard uh, has done stuff like 30-something in My So-Called Life and Tales of the City and Richard liked my work and Richard was the one who got me onto Queer as Folk. Um, so it was because I sort of took an alternate route and then through Richard, I ended up getting signed by my agency, uh, the agent that I'm still with today. So, it, you know, it's, it's sometimes you do what you have to do to get your work out there. And to me, that seemed, that seemed to be the, the correct path. Uh, we talked a little bit in the past about these fellowships and competitions and things. But I thought, you know, for the big talk, mm-hmm. we'd wait till you were here, Jane. Uh, yeah. What are the advantages? How do these things work? Are they still valuable? now as they were 10 years ago as they were 15 years ago? They're valuable in a different way. Uh, I got into the ABC Disney Writers Fellowship, which still exists. There's now one at NBC called Writers at the Verge that's really, really good. There's one at Warner Brothers. I had, I've noticed an interesting thing. I just figured this out, though. I went and I spoke a couple weeks ago to the new crop of Disney fellows, and I asked them where they'd all been living when they got the word that they were going to get in this program and be you know, brought to L.A. and taught to be TV writers, which was my experience. They were all already in L.A. Three of them had been writer's assistant. One of them had previously been staffed on shows. One had written like a feature. Like They were really, really at a much higher level than we had been in 92 when the program was new. Um, it was very much like Writers on the Verge at NBC where their program is explicitly designed to be for people who've had some early success and are trying to keep their grasp on the progress they've made. Um, So I'm not seeing anymore the program that's like what mine was, which was we'll pluck you out of the cornfield in Kansas and bring you here, and you you have a lot still to learn. You've you've written one spec that got you in this program, but it has a glimmer of promise, and we'll we'll nurture you and show you the city. I mean, we were sort of encouraged to go see the art museums, like you're new in L.A. Like there was very much the sense of we've brought you to, for the sake of a diversity program, we've brought people from all over the U.S. and Canada to like come here and and diverse, and and now I don't I'm not seeing a program anymore that does that. It's just like it's become so much harder to get in that even even the, I feel like now we need a program to get you ready for those programs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, have you guys 
do you think that the uh, industry as a whole has become more competitive than when you entered it? Are you seeing this trend? There's more shows, mm -hmm. but the staffs are smaller. I'd have to see mm -hmm. some numbers. <laughs> You're in luck. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the rooms that you guys have been in and the culture of those rooms. And, you know, you have that first job interview and you act like a sane person and you wear pants. Um, <laughs> Once you're in the room, what happens? What's it like? Can you, uh, uh, we'll start with you again, Jane, but can you compare and contrast a couple well, of the rooms? Yeah, the big compare and contrast is between multi-camera comedy and everything else. Um, good old traditional multi-camera sitcoms, of which there are still a few, are insane. If you, if you are the person who cannot shut up because you're so funny and can't leave the room till you get a laugh and just always has the quick thing to top all your friends, you will probably love it and make a lot of money and be really successful and work forever. If you, if that sounds like Sartre's hell, <laughs> try drama. <laughs> uh, it takes a, it's a very specific personality type that does well in those joke rooms. Um, and I can write a good joke, but I can't do it when there's eight guys yelling penis jokes at the same time I'm trying to... And it's usually Sorry. guys. It is. It's guys. And, it, and it's, it's just about speed and making the room laugh and a certain amount of body vulgarity generally. And it just it wasn't a good fit for me. But I've also... The first comedy room I was in was Dinosaurs, which was nothing like that. It was kind and generous and gentle. You guys know Dinosaurs? <laughs> No, <laughs> and it was a wonderful room. So it all it all varies, and then most drama rooms are much calmer and and more supportive and more thinky, more quiet. And you're talking about breaking the story, not writing the lines, which I find is a better use of a group brain. Um, but even then, they differ. You you have a room that meets every single day, or you have a room that only meets two weeks at the beginning of the year. You know, you you have a room that's competitive, a room that's general, a room that's all about story, a room that's constantly freaking out, or a room that's come and go as you please. You know, so they're, they're all different. Let's get into specifics a little bit. And I'm going to throw you in the fire just for a second. You're welcome. <laughs> but for example, the Caprica room, which you worked in. <laughs> My boss is sitting right here. That's so uncool. How is it different than Warehouse? Because Warehouse seems a very happy place from, it is. from what I've heard. It is. Well, they're both, they both very happy places. Um, they were they were very similar rooms in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think I think that uh, Caprica was a different show than Warehouse, and so Warehouse has a lot of the actually Warehouse thirteen writer Derek Hughes is somewhere here in the and and uh, writer on writer on the verge Derek Hughes is somewhere here. Get him, hey man. Yeah, so he can tell you if I'm lying about any of this. <laughs> um, uh, Warehouse thirteen because we do a lot of comedy. There are elements that feel sometimes like the comedy room that Jane's talking about that freak me out because uh, I don't. I'm not very good at yelling over people, and I, I suck at penis jokes. So. <laughs> <laughs> good night, everyone. Thanks for coming. <laughs> see, what, see what I did there? said that's not what I heard. <laughs> okay. That's funny. Um, <laughs> and uh, Caprica is, a, was a very serious show, and so we had a lot of serious discussions in, in the... And Jane can tell you if I'm lying about that. Uh, uh, we had a lot of serious discussions about about the themes that we wanted to talk about on that show, and so I found them two very different. There were a lot of times when I'd come home at the end. We spent all day on Caprica talking about, you know, who was going to get raped and tortured and, um, you know, religiously uh, abused, 
Uh, and so I would often go home needing three showers uh, from that. <laughs> but it was really interesting because, because I felt like I was sort of walking to, because I was working on both shows basically at the same time, the light, fun comedy where I was 13 and then go over and do, you know, something that was really serious uh, like Caprica. So it did lend itself to a different sort of tone. But the thing that was the same was that we were really just trying to build these stories um, and, and we really were looking at arcs and we were looking at how can we tell the best structure that, that we can. So that was, you know, I, I guess if you're going to look at those two specifically, that would be that would be my answer, sir. That's interesting, and that sort of reinforces what we've talked about in previous weeks where the tone of the show sort of sets the tone of the room, where Caprica was a very serious show. You were looking at things very seriously and taking things apart. It's not always the case. I mean, there, I mean, a lot of, we had a lot of, we had a lot of laughs on Caprica now and then. Um, it, uh, and, and it doesn't always totally apply. Um, but I think, I think generally when you get down into the, into what you're discussing in the show, it, it'll dictate a lot of how the room works. Well, you ruined my segue, but uh, I was going to ask, you know, does the tone of the show of Mad Men, how does that inform the room? Because, oh boy, Serious. I could not imagine. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, when, when we're really into it and we're figuring out story, it, is, it gets very serious in there. But all of us get along really well, which is amazing. Um, and so there's a lot of joking, joking around as well. That how, happens. how big you, is the staff? There are eight, nine writers. Um, a couple are part-time. But, and actually an interesting thing about our staff is that most of the writers are women, which is, is unusual. It, um, it was like two more, well, th with season three, there were more women than there are now, but there's still a majority of women in the room. Um, but, you know, like everyone, you, it's tension sometimes and you just need to pull off and joke around and watch YouTube every now and again. <laughs> but when we're breaking the story, it's pretty serious. <laughs> how was the room on Lost, Damon? And how is it uh, different than the rooms you've worked in in the past? It, you know, the, the, the room on Lost is probably the one that I'm most unqualified to talk about because from the perspective of, you know, of, of, of running the show, it's a much different animal than being on the show. And I think in the, the rooms that I was in previously, you know, um, on Nash and Crossing Jordan, a lot of it is, you know, the showrunner um, in both those cases was also, you know, a writer. And um, and they're hiring people who are, they feel are most capable of executing their vision of the show. And there's two ways that this can go. One way is they're basically hiring clones of themselves. And the other way is they're hiring people who are entirely different from themselves because they want many, many different voices and ideas to sort of flesh out their show. Um, so in the case of Lost, I, I at least think that that was our intention in terms of the people that we hired is to hire people who were not like us. You know, we had Eddie and Adam, um, Kisses and Horowitz, who were primarily comedy guys who, who wrote sort of like WB shows prior to that. They, you know, they, they came off of like popular and life as we know it. So when we were trying to get ABC to bring them on to Lost, they were like, we don't understand how this is a fit. And we, we said, but they're really good writers and the show actually needs some level of brevity and emotion to it. Um, you know, and how far not, in was the show when you hired? We hired them around guys. episode, you know, 14 or 15 of the okay. first season. So, so. they didn't, the network didn't have quite the taste of how light the show could get. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, uh, Hurley was on the show and he was certainly comic relief, but the, but the, sh- the show took itself very seriously and it was a very intense show. Um, and, and, I, and I think more or less tonally remained that, but I do, but I do feel we started, we, we made an effort to hire, you know, personality types who we thought would get along well, but you know, we didn't hire a bunch of power hitters. We, we hired people who were, you know, um, who were great fielders and people who were just going to get on base and, and, and change up pitchers. So that idea of, uh, of having a, a much more eclectic group of people who would normally never ever befriend each other in the real world, you know, and um, and and some people were team players and other people were lone wolves, and you know there was an always an, an an adaptive process to that, and you know unless you join the hive mind of the room, unless you play well with others, you get fired, and that's all there is to it. Like you can kind of have your own process and be a genius, and you can sit in the room and not even talk and be completely and totally successful. On, on a TV show, but if you, but if if you're mean or or you create disharmony or or drama, it just ne- it, it just doesn't work out. So um, you know that that's kind of my own personal experience. But the two shows prior to that, it was you know they were entirely different animals, and I think every show is its own animal. You know, I I um, I never worked with Joss, but I worked with. Uh, you know, this guy, Drew Goddard, who had worked very, you know, loved Drew, worked very extensively on, on, on Joss's shows and had sort of a sense of, of what those rooms were like, just based on the way that Drew interacted in our room. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what's kind of cool about it is, you know, and that to, to go back to the sports analogy where everyone's coming out of different teams, you know, when a show, you know, when, when a show sort of comes together, everybody has this very interesting and storied past. And, uh, you know, and a lot of the times you know, maybe the showrunners hired a couple different people that they've worked together with before, but everybody else doesn't quite know each other. So the first initial faction is the people who know each other and the people who know no one. And then, you know, and then they start kind of, you know, uh, joining up and it's, you become a family is what it is. There, there was something huge you said in there about um, you can be, you can not talk in a room and be a successful member of the team. That is like the hugest lesson, I think, for, for new writers who find yourself in a room. I always made the mistake of trying to make sure that the showrunner heard my voice every so often, even if I had nothing to contribute. And this is a huge error. Talk when you've got something to say. If you don't, no one's keeping track. No one is hearing you not talk. Only you are hearing the echoing silence in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if... If you're talking just to talk, you're slowing it down, and now you're being the person pushing the team in the wrong direction. Better to be quiet, turn in great drafts, know that maybe the room's not your thing, or you or you just don't have anything today, and and don't sweat that. Don't let that turn you into a ball of neuroses. Just let it go <laughs> and talk. Talk when you got something. Absolutely. Uh, I want to jump back to you, Damon, and talk a little bit more about that room because it sounds like you put together this really unbelievable team. Uh, everyone sort of contributing in different ways. How did you guys break down seasons? How did you break down episodes, you know, on a real practical level? Um, you know, the the show was always very room intensive, you know. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, conservatively, without exaggeration, which I'm prone to, we would spend at least six to eight hours of every working day in the room, which is, you know, a lot. Um, and I, that's my favorite place to be. And, and um and it can be very frustrating at times, but once you've actually kind of broken through on an episode, it's actually the greatest feeling in the world because you're just, you know, you're in the zone. So I think that 
as far as the first season, which I already explained, was kind of all hands on deck and everybody in the room and just trying to figure out the episode that was in front of us. And I think really what we what the, what our ten poles in the first season were was, you know, when JJ and I first started talking about the show, he was like, "There should be a hatch. They should find a hatch, and they should find it in the pilot." And and I was like, "Awesome! What's in there?" And he goes, "I don't, you know." <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen my TED Talk? I don't come up with what's in it. I just say it's there. And so we, 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 we came up with this. Um, this uh, and then I was like, but what about Rambaldi? And he, uh, he, he said, um, let's make a deal. They'll find it once we have a sense of what's inside it. So we started kind of talking about okay, Locke and Boone are going to find this thing and what might be inside, and we had this idea that there was a group on the island that had basically been doing sort of behavioral experiments, and they arrived in the late 70s, early and 80s. We hadn't named them the Dharma Initiative yet, but once we came up with the idea that there was probably the last remnant, maybe just a guy down there, we're like, okay, they can find it. But here's the deal. The, the, as you said, right to the last scene, we're not going to go in there in the first season. The big cliffhanger is going to be... Um, you know, that we have a, a preliminary contact with the others. They're going to abduct Walt because we had this issue. The actor was growing at an exponential rate far beyond <laughs> the speed of the show. <laughs> and we could either go all the way supernatural with that or, and, and then, the, you know, this issue of blowing open the hatch. And so, uh, so we kind of knew what we were writing to. But other than that, it was like, this week it's going to be a Sawyer episode, and this is emotionally what it's about. We're trying to tell really compelling redemption stories in sort of a New Yorker short story kind of format. And the, and and for us, the bread and butter of the show were the flashback stories, and the island was infinitely less interesting to us. Once the show, once everybody was talking about was, what's the monster? Where'd the polar bear come from? What What's in that hatch? Who are the others, and how did they get there? That, and we, it was like, okay, now people are actually watching the show. We're not going to get imminently canceled. So in the space between the first and second season, that's when we established basically the working pattern for all the seasons that would follow, which was we spent basically three weeks of doing this thing called mini camp, um, which is all we talked about were, were the series, the season-long arcs, the mysteries, you know, what the character arcs would be, what was the nature of the island, when, and when we, when we were planning on certain making, making certain reveals. And, and as you said, what were the, you know, Joss would basically come in with those ideas or whether you cook them together. We, we said by episode five, this is what we find out by episode nine, this is here. That would sometimes slide up or move back, but you know, more or less that, that was it still on a, on a episode by episode basis. The hardest part of the show was just sort of breaking the episode coming up with a sort of a beginning, middle and end because the show in when it was working was just about a single person. So the cool thing was the show, there was a different protagonist every week. It's like, it's great, you know, that if you like Jack or if you like Sawyer or if you like Saeed or whatever, that you're just about seven episodes away from them coming up in the rotation again. And, you know, and so, you know, just the fundamental decision of whose episode is it going to be this week based on this larger plan of, okay, this week we kind of need them now kind of heading across the island to have this confrontation with the others. So should that be a Jack episode or is there a way to make it a Charlie episode? Maybe it should be a Charlie episode, And but how is the action emotionally focused on him? So figuring out that puzzle um, every week went all the way through the final season of the show. Like, you know, we could only really be four or five episodes ahead in terms of knowing who it was going to be focused on versus what was going to be happening in the episode. So it had to be incredibly room intensive. 
and and you know and then we we had a rotation of writers so basically Carlton and I would write every fifth or or sixth episode and you know and every other writer was someplace in that ro- rotation because of this because it took so, so much time to break stories we always teamed people up so you and sometimes if it if a team was in or liked working together you know and uh, and enjoyed the process, then they would write again. But if they, if it was, if it was disharmonious or they just kind of wanted to try something new. So by the end of like, if, if there were entities who wrote on the show for five seasons, they wrote with almost everybody else on that show, uh, on, on the show. And it did create this sort of spirit of, you know, teamwork, which is, yeah. Okay. It's great that Carlton and I get a lot of the accolades for having cooked, cooked loss but the reality is is the heart and soul was was baked in the room by that room and all and and i i, I all, all the there were so many ideas you know that kind of came into it to 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 say that it wasn't a hive mind that cooked the show is completely and totally a falsehood it was the, the the room broke the series uh has this been your experience on mad men um or is there uh someone steering <laughs> uh, it could be anyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, the the show is from Matt Weiner's brain. It's it's where all of us, when we sit down to write, you're trying to write like him. Um, and he does come in the beginning of the season. He has ideas for where he wants the characters to go, where he wants the company to go. But it, it is a very collaborative room and 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 I've heard he he's even said this before and 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 this season we had when he was not there when he was like in a thousand production meetings or whatever we had two people running the room um uh for him (laughs) and we would generate a lot of stories sometimes without him there and he'd come back and I don't like this I love this and in the end he has the final say on what's going into it but there is, it's very collaborative, and a lot of stuff comes from people's personal stories. Um, I probably shouldn't say some of them, but like there, there are certain ones. Do you have, do you have your own? Because uh, <laughs> you can talk about that. No, I don't. You know, I, I got to write episode five of season four, which was um, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, because my grandfather had fought in the Pacific. And he had been at Pearl Harbor, and when he was later on life, he had Alzheimer's, and we were going to a Japanese restaurant, and it turns out it was a bad idea. (laughs) So, in a sense, like, I understood what Roger was going through, because I had been through that with my grandfather. (laughs) I didn't get it for the child masturbation part of it, so. (laughs) Um, I didn't even remember that. So things like that, that'll happen, too, but. I, I, there is, there's, there are stories in there that are literally from people's personal lives. And then you guys have a fairly big staff uh, for 12, 13 episodes. How do you break it up? Um, well, we all of us are in the room at the beginning. And, we, and again, we have two people who come in part-time. So they kind of split up. That becomes you know one writer because they're, they're, one's there three days and the other is two days. I think they overlap once. Uh, but we we start doing it, and then when we finish breaking the first episode, someone will be assigned to it, and they'll be sent off to write it, and they'll be gone. And then at a certain point, people someone will be on set as well, covering their episode. So at a certain point, like season three, I remember there was one time where I was I was the writer's assistant, 
and it was just me and one other writer in the room and it was just like <laughs> where is everybody <laughs> uh but yeah that's how we work it out you guys want to do you want to throw anything else in if not i'll uh, move on to questions I would just say every show I've ever worked on my entire career starts out with the showrunner saying, we're going we're gonna to split the room. We're going to split the room. We're going to break twice as many episodes this time. And it has never, ever, ever worked until I got to Warehouse 13, where Jack Kenny said, we're going to split the room. And I was like, uh-huh, absolutely not. Uh, and then he did. And uh, we actually did break twice. And it's usually only at the beginning of the season because, like Aaron was saying, as you go through the season, everybody starts peeling off and writing their scripts. But certainly we, we do that on the show, which is – Totally freaking me out even three years later, but it actually it actually does work sometimes, I guess. And just the different kinds of rooms. I've you know the Joss room. Every idea really did come from Joss. On on Gilmore Girls, the the ideas came from the staff, but Amy wrote like every word that you saw. On Battlestar, Ron wasn't around, but guided it so skillfully from a distance that it, w- it felt like this great collaboration between the brain in the room and his brain. So like that, that mixture, the sort of pers- the fuel percentage mixture is, is different on each show, and that's just how, how it needs to be. I, I do want to ask something about that, because you guys have all worked with uh, these creators of shows or co-creators of shows uh, who are very strong personalities or big personalities. Uh, are you able to tell, I mean, it seems like on Mad Men you've been able to, and you touched on this a little bit, Damon, but... Are you able to tell your personal story? Are you able to tell a story that's close to you or put your own point of view into those stories? I, I had one experience, which I, I know I've talked about before, like on a DVD or something, so forgive me if... Um, you just take a nap for a minute while I... <laughs> it's boring to you. But uh, one of the best experiences I ever had was an episode of Buffy where Tara was dead and Willow was sort of out on her first date with a woman uh, who wasn't Tara. And I wrote my draft of the script and I came in and we've been talking in the room about, I, I always had this idea that I, I wanted people to see what my experience of being gay was. I wanted people to see that it can be fun, that there's, there's lightness in the world too. It's not always coming out drama and people beating you up all the time. It's, <laughs> there's, there's other stuff too. too. And I, and I, I remember us, with us talking about that in the room and then I came in with this draft where Willow was, Willow was timid and Kennedy, the, the woman that she was on the date with was, was particularly gentle with her. And Joss and Marty sat me down and they said, this is good. We want to hear what you were talking about before in the room. We want you to take it farther. And I, I, very rarely do you get the note from anybody, please do more of this. Uh, please take it further. Please scare us a little bit more. And, and that to me was an amazing experience. And even on a show where the ideas so often came from one person's brain, I was given the opportunity to go and bring more of my own personal history into that episode and uh, that's something that stands out for me as, as a really rewarding experience. Uh, and Damon, you've, again, you touched on this, and you're clearly uh, a storyteller. You know, just talking to you here tonight, that you you really enjoy the crafting of the stories. Uh, but is there something you can look at in any point in your career and say, yes, that's that's me. That's my point of view right there. That's me on the page. You know, I I, I think that whatever you're working on it's impossible for you not to use your writing as therapy and mm-hmm. to deny yourself that instinct is to, is to hamper your writing. And um, at the end of the day, sometimes you don't realize it as, as it's happening, but in, hind- but in hindsight, you're able to look at it and go, oh yeah, okay, so that's what was going on here. And I think, you know, um, essentially when Lost happened, 
Um, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said a billion times before, but JJ had made it very clear to me that he would direct the pilot, but then he he still had Alias, and he he was a, had just written another pilot, and he was going to go off and direct Mission Impossible Three. So, for for literally episode one, he was gone. He was in Maine on vacation with his family, and I was sort of left to my you know own devices, and I couldn't believe that they would actually let that happen. I was thirty <laughs> years old, and they were like, "Here, you are the CEO of a sixty million dollar year <laughs> company. This is still nine episodes before Carlton." came in, it was just me, and I was going back and forth. I had just proposed marriage to my wife. I was going back and forth between Hawaii and Los Angeles. I was, you know, prepping every episode with directors and, and you know, and breaking all the stories with the staff and writing scripts, dealing with the network on notes, doing all that all that myself. And, and, and basically the story that I wanted to tell is, you know, my father died uh, like a year and a half before that. And so uh, obviously – you know, at the time that I was writing, I wasn't like and doing anything more than writing, but very quickly it became apparent to me. It's like, okay, so the lead character of the show is completely and totally overwhelmed. He does not want to be a leader. You know, everybody is asking him to be a leader. He, he's crying all the time. Yeah. Uh, he's Matthew Fox. Uh, no, but, and, and so that idea, you know, he be, he became my guy, and then but slowly but surely, the other thing that started happening was I was having a, a kind of a spiritual awakening as a result of my father dying because you know my dad was an was sort of a self professed atheist, and when when an atheist dies, it's very hard because you you can't you're not allowed to say they're in a better place now, you know? like even if that's what you believe, and so. I was starting to have all these sort of theological things emerging, and then Locke became sort of the guy who was advanced. This idea of something happened, you know, suddenly he was up and out of the wheelchair, and he wanted to ascribe some meaning to it. So instead of saying the word God, he would just say the word the island, you know. So if you look at the first season, you know, my own sort of, you know, kind of spiritual search, you know, if Locke is saying this means something or the island wants me to do something, but I don't know what it is, became sort of interchangeable with that. And then those became the two poles of the show that I was so interested in that culminated in that season one finale when they're actually having this kind of, you know, man of science, man of faith um, debate. And so that's whatever's going on in your own head or your own heart. If you can put it on the page, it will feel even in the context of a genre show or a crazy island show, there will be some kind of truth to to, to, to that struggle. So, I, you know, it'll be hard for me to ever to, to think of anything that's as personal to me as this show. That's amazing. Uh, Jane, you've gotten to play in a lot of people's sandboxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like as a fan of yours, I can say, yes, that is a Jane Espenson episode, you know? And, and, and it's absolutely a compliment. Uh, but <laughs> well, I think we can, right? There's a there's a fun with language that you have that uh, people tell me they can tell. Like even even in a show like Buffy, where we were all trying very much to write like Joss, people tell me they can spot mine before before the name comes up, which I I'm I'm flummoxed by. But yay! Cool. <laughs> uh, is there anything though that you can point to in your career, and again playing in all of these these toy boxes, where you can say this is me, this is me on the page? Uh, it's individual lines. It's it's dialogue because I feel like I live and swim around in the dialogue, and so I uh, those are the things that come back to me when someone quotes a line. A lot of times on Buffy, the line that gets quoted to you is one that Joss wrote, because um, <laughs> he is so amazing at that. He would he would say a line when we were breaking the story, and it would just go all the way through, and it would be the line everyone would remember. Um, but there are a few when when Willow was caught 
having scrawled a, an arcane symbol on her notebook and has to defend it. And she says, it's a doodle. I do doodle. You too. You do doodle too. And like, that's me. <laughs> like, and there are those are sort of scattered throughout my career when, when Dawn is singing about anchovies because they're the most delicious fishes. That's me. Like just little, yeah, the wordplay stuff and, and just little, I, I like to think that I go a layer deeper in some scenes. Um, and, and come up with, I'm always thinking about really, 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 what would really, really, really happen? Would you really say that? Would anyone ever really say the line we know, the line you're all set to write because it's the line that always happens in the scene? No, what would you really say? And so if there are any of those moments that um, that just ring true, so not just the joke moments, but, but moments that ring true, I, I hope that those are something I bring to it. Um, but yeah, it's, I always see it in the scenes, not so much in the overall. All right, I think we, we have plenty of time for you guys. Uh, you know the drill. You'll ask the question. I'll repeat the question for the podcast so it's recorded, and then we'll get our answer. Yes, sir. Uh, I've heard from writers many times. Uh, they love to hear a certain actor say their lines. Uh, does the opposite ever happen? Do you ever find yourself <laughs> surprised by, not, uh, by having your words delivered oddly by an actor, or... Have there been actors on shows at some time, maybe, who you always were worried about certain things you might <laughs> I'm sure you'll go into specifics on that. <laughs> but <laughs> the question is, uh, and we haven't really talked about this, and I think it's fertile ground, but the relationship between the writers and the actors, you know, uh, have you been surprised by an actor saying your words or, yes, disappointed by it? Or, you know, what, what has that relationship been like? Anyone who wants to jump in. I got one. It's you, you think when you're writing when you're writing it, you're hearing their voices, and you think you're hearing it the the perfect way, the way that sounds exactly like them. And it is often startling when they don't say it the way you heard it, because you're like, no, I heard you say it right right in here. Um, I get, I wanted. I have one example where I was. What I heard wasn't what I expected. I had Buffy say to Anya what I thought was going to come out as good on you. And she said, good on ya, which I had, didn't realize was a way people were saying that phrase. It had become sort of a, pers- a popular phrase that was always said with that intonation. But we had a character named Anya. <laughs> so it was like, no, so I ca- and I didn't want to give the line reading. No, say good on you. So I kept sort of saying, well, can you, can you hit the word you? Good on ya. It, it, like, it, it, I couldn't, couldn't get what I wanted, and it was just, there, there was no way to communicate it. Um, sort of bad on me for having written a line that was so hard to to find the intonation. But there are you you that was that was an example. There are many many more. You often don't hear what you thought you were going to hear, and sometimes it's better. What about the rest of you guys? You've all worked on series with really phenomenal uh, and intense actors. Uh, what has the relationship been like? Do they feel as much an ownership as you do? Yeah, it sounded like it, it sounded like there was going to be more to that, but there wasn't. I was surprised Not, too. You know, the 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 good ones always do, and I think that you know the you know the 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 res, the immediate knee jerk response I had to the question is, you can forget the phrase "your words," you know, and as soon as you do, you're actually sort of liberated. They might actually be saying words that you wrote, but when you start to kind of feel about it, like you know, 
I am this character's parent, and the other <laughs> parent of that character is the person portraying them, and the child is going of our, our, is going to be the performance itself. You know, is is and very oftentimes, you know, I I was almost always universally surprised by how performance sort of transcended the words or changed the intention of the words because they were bringing something else entirely to it. But good writers actually are excellent listeners, you know, and I often felt like the stuff that I was writing, I was more channeling from previous performances that that person was giving and you know I, I don't know if this if this is an urban legend or a true story but I like to present it as a true story which is <laughs> Mammoth was basically you know workshopping some version of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross with Kevin Spacey and they did a table read and this was in the early days of the play and Spacey came up to him afterwards and said hey David I, you know the, the play is brilliant but I just there's this one thing that that I that I say that the character says that I just don't I just don't. I don't think he would say. And Mammoth says, "All right, what's what's what page is it on?" And 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 Kevin Spacey says, "Great, uh, it's uh, it's on page seventy three And they he, Mammoth thumbs through the script and goes, N- "No, he says it." <laughs> so, so, so I kind of like, you know, I I hope that's true, but I've never had the balls to do it. <laughs> yeah. You guys want to jump in, or should I move on? <laughs> I, I, the only thing I would say is that I, I think it took me a long time to figure out that that uh, the reaction of of no no now say it the way that I had it in my head um, almost always for me came out of just came out of fear came out of like and and that's what you know sort of that tight grip usually is is fear and and when you let go of that when you say like like Damon was saying you're just one parent to to this kid and there are others the actor doing his part is is apparent to that to that role too, then it's and you know it's in good hands when you've got when you, you know when you have actors that you trust and I trust every single actor I've ever worked with. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, letting go of that fear is such a liberating feeling, and and knowing that in fact what's going to come out might not be the way that you heard it in your head when you were sitting at the keyboard, but it might be better, and that's a that's a really exciting feeling actually being on set to to see that happen. The, the really naturalistic, almost documentary feeling of the dialogue on Battlestar Galactica came because they were given tremendous amounts of freedom to just mess with the lines, ad-lib, do it another way. Sometimes they'd write their own speeches and Baltar would be up there saying things and you're looking through, the, where is this? And it, and it would be amazing. Like Those characters lived, those actors lived those characters and knew them really, really well and could kind of be just set free. Like some sort of weird improv show, um, and and I did learn to like the the say it say it with the emphasis on you was not a sentence I would have said by the time I got to Battlestar. You you loosen up. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, when it comes to breaking the story, before you get to be in a room, when you have to do it on your own, the spec, when you're putting together a pilot, uh, how do you go about it? What do you focus on? The question is about breaking the story on your own before you're in the room. Uh, how do you do it? What's the thing? You, what's the first thing you focus on? Take us through the process. Anyone who's done it. Um, well, if you're talking about the like, come up with the story part. You're talking about the structuring a story once you've got it. When you have to write a spec or a pilot, how do you? What is it that you're trying to get across? Like, you have a good idea. Okay, you've got the sure idea. I say watch watch a bunch of TV, in particular, find shows that have a similar tone and feel to the show you want to write. This is this is going to sound like cheating, but it's genuinely <laughs> legit. Watch all of the episodes of that show. Back create their outlines. Create the outlines that must have been the skeleton that that show is became, and study how they do it, because that's quicker and easier than trying to learn the general principles of structuring a drama 
no, you've got you've got all these examples from people who have already done that. So look, just look at how a show that you think is well structured is structured. Then pour your liquid into that container. So that's, that's great advice. But, but it's not the only way to do it. These guys well, probably do it different. <laughs> no, I do it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, back here. Uh, Jane, you mentioned that uh, writers' rooms are getting smaller now, and I'm wondering what you guys think about this trend, where you see it going. I, I know some rooms are even without writers' rooms now, super small writers' rooms with three or four or five, um, and this is kind of dis uh, uh, troubling for, uh, <laughs> for aspiring writers, obviously. So I'm wondering if you think that this we're going to get to a point where the money's there again and showrunners are able to expand these rooms um, and then just your general thoughts on the trend. The question is about pretty much the state of the industry as regards writers. And I, I would be I'd be curious to hear what you guys think of it because rooms are getting smaller, as our, our uh, question said. And uh, do you think it's going to swing back? How do you think things are looking right now for, for us as new writers as well as for you guys as established writers? I don't know. I mean, we may be going to this much more everyone's a freelancer model. The show that I'm on now, we're all f freelancers. Um, but it's just, you know, it, these short things. You've got 10 episodes in a season. You can, you can do that. Um, and you can have a small staff. Um, I don't know. Maybe everything's a pendulum. Maybe it'll come back. All I know is that every year I see new young writers in the writer's room who didn't have jobs last year. So people are still getting through. Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, not having a business degree, the, na the nature of the beast is that it's highly unlikely that, that staff sizes are going to increase because networks are going like, hey, if you did it perfectly fine, with you got through 22 episodes with seven people, why, why would we hire an eighth or a ninth? And I do think we're going to see a lot more shows that are doing 10-episode seasons or 13-episode seasons because the, because the metrics of how they make money um, you know, and and the fact that basic cable and um, and pay cable and now, you know, there Netflix is producing its own shows. So that idea of I think that, you know, the, the Jane is tapped into the more likely future, which is more shows, smaller staffs, same amount of jobs, mm -hmm. just sort of distributed in, in a different way. And so, you know, it. it it's hard for me to make a case to say I needed nine writers to write 25 episodes of Lost and I need nine writers to write 16 episodes of Lost, although that happened to be the case because it's not it's not how many episodes we're writing. It's, you know, it's 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 the intensity of the process itself. And, and so, um, you know, I, I, I would feel hamstrung by by less writers. And, and of course, the nature of the beast is you can only get two or three scripts written by time the season starts. So there's just a pure. I've got to hand the baton off to the next guy. So, you know, because I just finished my draft and someone else needs to run with it now. So, you know, that that's the very long-winded answer to your question, but nobody knows. When I, I when I was in the Disney program in 1992, I was told that there were fewer professional TV writing jobs than there were positions in the NBA. Um, <laughs> and I wonder if that's still the case, because that was before cable exploded and got a lot of jobs there. We may be better off now than we were when I started. I don't know. There's certainly a lot more different opportunities now. Than, than there are in than, the NBA? Than there are in the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I submitted my spec to the Lakers. <laughs> not responded. Uh, let's get someone in the back here. You guys have anything to ask? You are in my book. <laughs> Uh, no one, in, no one way in the back. Yes, right here. 
Yeah, you. Question is uh, about writing specs as spec pilots, I guess. Uh, how do you balance breaking the rules and using your own unique voice with, you know, what television is? You don't have to get your spec on TV. So you don't have to worry about being inside the box at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you have to write, like, the idea that you're the most passionate about. Because if you're going to try to fit all of these categories that, you know, if you're, if you're going to try to write the next Modern Family, it's already there. And if there's certain boxes that I think people like feel like they need to check, and then what they make comes out homogenous. So just write whatever you want to write that you think is the best sample for yourself. The ones that get talked around around town are the crazy ones. Yeah. Yeah, and and I, all that being said, I think that you have to go through the exercise of following the rules before. Mm-hmm before you decide to break them. Yeah. I feel like in many ways, at least, and, and by the way, anything that we say up here should not be treated, they're all generalizations and based, I, I would never ever dare say, I know how to create a hit show just because I was lucky enough to pull it off once. Um, so all that being said, I do feel like in many ways, Lost was a, a response to the fact that I worked on heavily regimented formulaic shows for the five years preceding that. And, you know, and I know that Matt, you know, has had a very sort of interesting, you know, uh, creative history prior to, you know, working on Mad Men and everybody puts the Sopranos in front of Matt. But he was actually a television. To hear some of his credits is always. He was did all half hour before Sopranos. He was like on Becker and Andy Richter controls the universe and a bunch of stuff you probably never heard of. So, yeah, he's had a very eclectic. So, so that idea of kind of like constraining yourself a little bit and saying like I'm going to put you know I'm going to put myself in 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 the jail of the formula before you know and and that way when I break free I'll know exactly what I'm breaking free from versus hey I'm just going to write the beaver you yeah. know which is like <laughs> look every once in a while those scripts that make the blacklist are great but if you look at the blacklist from 10 years ago and you say like okay what career have those people had in the ten in the ten intervening years, versus the career that people who sort of, you know, started inside the system and then broke out of the system, you know, it does feel like those those the the people in the latter category are are. Are, are, have a higher degree of success. And the worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you put wood on the ball and you write that amazing pilot and then you turn it in and they don't let you run it. You know, they'll basically say, who are you? Have you ever been on a staff? Do you know how to staff a show? Can you sit in a budget meeting? Can you, you know, and then they freak you out and you hire somebody who is seasoned and professional. And then that person comes in and politically pushes you aside. And then it's not even your show anymore. So the idea of, of kind of functioning within the system before you go outside the system, that that's my own personal, you know, spin on it. But I would not want to, you know, rain on your, I, I don't want to be like that motherfucker Lindelof, you know, just killed my dream. <laughs> That you asked. I, th- I think there's a sweet spot between between this. Like, just don't turn in a 
doctor procedural that's exactly like doctor procedurals we've seen before do do the crazy do the out of the box story about about you know your grandmother's experiences in an in internment camp and you know like like you can but still follow storytelling rules make it compelling make it but but if you find something that no one's telling a story about, I think that'd be the way I'd go for a spec pilot. That being said, I would watch a show called Doctor Procedural. <laughs> <laughs> so I, just, I just know what he's up against. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's I think there's actually a value too in in taking the the formula that everybody thinks they know and and doing something to it. Writing the show that's comfortable and safe, but giving it sparkling dialogue, or giving it giving it syntax that nobody has seen before, or or putting one character, putting your main character in that's a little bit of a left turn from what you usually see. That was certainly the the first pilot spec that I wrote was just a regular family show that would be on on Sundays at seven, but I gave it a lead that that I didn't see on TV, and 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 suddenly the story became totally different. In that, and, what what was your lead? Just, uh, Everything I say is okay. It was a, it was a, it was a gay, it was a gay lawyer raising two kids, and and I didn't see a lot of that on TV. I I, I write other things too. I, I promise, not, not just gay people. But um, uh, it, it was something that I hadn't seen before. So what I I set out specifically to give myself the exercise of I want to write a show that isn't like anything I've seen on TV, and yet feels exactly like everything that's on TV. And and so, to me, that that was something that might be an exercise to try. That that might be something to that'll get you the best of both worlds. Oh, I like that. Answer. I think you guys have actually just isolated the, the real critical distinction, which is, you know, it's not so much the premise as it is the character or the mm-hmm. characters that that kind of makes it sing. So mm-hmm. try to, you know, if you focus on that, it's like House felt, you know, like very very different when it came along, but it was Doctor Procedural, except, you know, he just happened to, you know, be pill popping incredibly curmudgeonly, and they just, you know, uh, hit a sweet spot. Well, there was that period for a couple of years in there where, where it was all the crazy butt shows. Like, he's crazy, but he's a detective. He's right. crazy. <laughs> that being said, I would also watch a show called Crazy Butt. <laughs> we're, we're developing a slate. <laughs> all right, where's that guy who's behind me? What? Uh, how do you make your character sing? How do you make your character sing? <laughs> write really good songs. <laughs> okay, no, all right, fine. I take it back. The, the episode was once more with feeling. <laughs> any 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 advice for writing characters who really do leap off the page? I've I've always I've just always found that the more you and this is I mean I think this is something that I I got from Joss too but the more you give them syntax that is different and unusual but still sounds like something people would actually say just playing being trying to invert the syntax a little bit that that's one that's one trick among among many that I found. I sort of have this image of you know you give them you give them three parallel lines you know three traits that seem to go in line with each other a person who's like this often has this other and then give them one that goes across it that's like just not not what you'd expect. Can you it's give an example? Crazy butt. <laughs> he's all Without these, in all these me? ways that he's he's like house is like a doctor in all these ways he, he puts his his patient first he wakes up in the middle of the night with the solution he he works his students to find but going across it is the Pill popping, I don't care. Crazy. Yeah, uh, the, to to boil it down to its its simplest form, it's just it's what's your secret? 
you know, so that idea of like, if you fundamentally accept the rule that every single person in this room has a secret and it doesn't mean that you haven't shared it with some people, but you know, and if you look at your characters and you apply the same logic and say, there is, they have a secret, what is it? And, and they might, it might not even come out in the process of, they might not tell it, they might not reveal it. It might not be germane to whatever your story is, but if you commit to it and decide what it is, um, that infinite, that automatically gives them a level that they did not have previously for lost. It just so happened to be essential in the, in the building of that show. But I always feel like that that's an interesting place to start. I feel like that just changed my life. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's very cool. We're all learning today. We're all learning. Uh, yeah, I see someone back here. When Aaron was introduced, it was mentioned that you had an original episode of Mortal Kombat. And this is going to be a question for you guys. Um, I actually work at RPM, so I'm kind of flexing my muscles to have an admin who got the Honda account back. So, how much research did you do for that? How much research did you have to do for all your accounts? Um, aside from a couple of them personal that you know about? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Uh, research. How much do you do? How does it play into the episode? Uh, yeah, let's start with you, Aaron. Well, we do tons of research on our show because it's set in a different period. Uh, we have somebody who is titled the research assistant, and um, there's questions that come out of the room constantly, and she's taking care of those. And when you're writing a script, you have questions for her too. Um, in, in specific reference to that episode, we did a lot of research on Japanese business practices. Um, I did some on my own. She did some, our, our research assistant. And then uh, we also have two consultants in the room who have worked in advertising. One worked in the, in the 60s, one works in it now. And they've had their own experiences a- as well and knew other people who had had their own experiences. So those stories came out also. And so I get, and then, you know, we call people too constantly. So we spoke to somebody who is an expert on Japanese business. We spoke to somebody who knew how to speak Japanese because we had to translate some stuff. <laughs> and tons. And it, and it pretty much, a lot of it made it into the script, obviously. Yeah. And in, in fact, when I was when I was writing the, the script, which is now t- entitled The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, I came across that book. We hadn't come up with that beforehand. And I put it in thinking perhaps, you know, oh, God, this wasn't in the outline. What's Matt going to think? And then he loved it. Um, and he had knew- known about the book himself. Um, and then next thing you knew, we were titling the episode that. So, when, uh, when I was working on Dexter, they handed out, at the beginning of the season, they handed out books about serial killers to each of us. And... <laughs> <laughs> I had to I had to read it, read them like this, my hand my hand over the pictures because I I can't take it, uh, and and it was a show about a blood spatter expert and about serial killers, so it was a whole bunch of things that I didn't want to know about. So there were there were certain things that we had to know, and then I took it to a certain point and I said I'll make up the rest. Um, uh, but we just had to I, I wanted to make sure that it was at least accurate in terms of those two things, uh, the mindset of, of a serial killer and and the job that he was actually doing, just so that it would present like it was something that was real, but um, but I still covered the pictures with my hand because I didn't want to actually have to, I'd wait till we showed it on screen before I'd have to watch it. So. 
Yeah, you do the best that you can. If you've got something that requires a lot of medical research or something, you know, you you have your you consult with an expert. But sometimes the episode is shooting Monday, and the scene that you were absolutely basing around a thing you were really sure of, and it turns out not to be true. Sometimes stuff gets through, so I'm sure stuff gets on the air that's that's not accurate. We hear about it, um, but there is a certain amount of just the the time. the The machine is so relentless. So you, you can't always catch it all. What about you, Damon? You guys are covering a lot of different kinds of characters from different kinds of worlds. You know, we, we had this guy, uh, Greg Nations, who is a genius, who was our um, uh, script coordinator, who, you know, had a, who was essentially our research assistant. And, and you know, we, w- we would go to him regularly and ask him to vet stuff. But at the end of the day, it, you know, in, in the case of Lost, it was more about you know, the show took place in a very simulated, heightened reality as it was. So it was more like, okay, um, you know, we we need the Black Rock to look real. Give us all the research that you can on, on what vessels would have been sailing in the South Pacific around this era um, and and what, what colors they would be flying versus, you know, a much more heavily, the episode is about, you know, X, Y, Z. And I, and I think that, um, you know, uh, it's uh, as Jane just said the you know the sort of time constraints. It's it's you 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 want something to feel real. I feel more. We were more inclined in the research department to actually go to other movies and TV shows and books. Like especially when we got into doing time travel, the conversations that we had about time travel in general and how time travel worked and how we wanted to do time travel on the show were the most pervasive and ongoing conversations that we had. And the language that we used was, you know, are we doing back to the future time travel or Peggy Sue time travel? You know, it's like, well, Peggy Sue time travel is like, you know, maybe it never happened, but well, let's say it didn't, let's say it's non-paradoxical time travel. So you, you actually start pulling from all the sh- sort of shared references that you have and, and saying, let's do it like that because they've done it before and you can learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Yes. I just saw James Franco's movie this week. So my question is, do you think it's good to take time to write a premise or can you focus on just piloting a single character by piloting that premise? You mean you saw my premise? I saw your, your character premise for Data this week on TV. So, should, yeah, it was on TV. It was on TV. <laughs> I don't. I'm, okay. <laughs> um, but should we take time writing premises and character arcs and story arcs like that, or should we just write pilots? Just write. Just write pilots. Yeah. Yeah. Off of that question, um, can you just talk a little bit about the difference? Like, if you you're working on a show, you have an infrastructure and deadlines that keep you accountable. Um, do you have advice on working on pilots spec? How to a, how long realistically is spec it could take? Um, and um, also, how you have such a a strong staff and the research people who are working on the show, those are the things that make it excellent. How do you, how do you advise an individual working on their own to make those Okay, let's let's talk about the first question first, which is sort of about the nuts and bolts of writing uh, a spec or writing a pilot, whether it's you know on spec or for someone. How long should it take? What kind of hours do you guys put in? What's your process? Be curious to know. Well, writing a spec is very different from what we do because we we've got two weeks at most to turn around a script. 
pilot you can take longer and you should because of exactly what you were talking about at the question about research that you have to do it all yourself so um i would i would take oh my gosh i could imagine sitting down for three months and coming out with a spec pilot that i liked it's there's also the there's also the issue that this is if it's a spec this is your one chance to i mean no pressure, but this is your this is your one chance. And this is your one chance to shine. So you should take as much time as you can because when we're doing a show, yeah, we get two weeks, and then we'll we'll deal with whatever falls through the cracks as we start going through production. You don't have that luxury. You're showing the script to people and saying you should think of me as a writer, and they'll read the one script, and if it's not great, you know that's a that's that's a mark against you right there. So you want it to be as good as it possibly can. So you should take as much time as as you can. Three months sounds. Yeah, that's like that's a good amount of time for it. Uh, and what about how the, the follow-up question is? You know, how do you get that experience or that? Uh, how do you fake a room? What you get from a room in a spec script that just one person's writing? Friends that you trust give you notes and and just listen to them. Don't don't refute them as they're giving you the notes. Just listen to them, <clears throat> and 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 take them seriously. Throw out the ones that are nonsense, but really think about anyone that makes you uncomfortable that you really want to throw out, those are probably the ones you really have to listen to. Um, yeah, and then get advice. You know, if you've got a manager or someone like that, get get notes from them. And and don't take every note slavishly, but, but really think about it and set it aside for a couple of weeks and forget about it and read it as if it's, in two weeks, it's really fresh to your eyes again. At least if you've got a memory like mine, it reads like I never saw it. <laughs> I can actually overnight. I've had that happen. Where you go like, well, look, I wonder. the script elves came and wrote this because I don't remember. Um, so get some perspective on it, and that's another reason to let it take a long time. It's got to sit long enough so that you can look at it objectively. I, I always used to have two groups of friends read read my work. I'd have the group of friends that uh, I, I knew didn't want to hurt my feelings. Because they would be good for my ego, uh, and they would and they would also point out the lines that they really liked a lot. So I knew that there were some things that okay they were hitting. And then I had a group of friends who didn't care about my feelings, and the ones who would be honest. And and I found both to be uh, useful actually, um, mostly because my ego is so sensitive and uh, delicate that uh, I needed people to <laughs> bounce it up. But uh, but I think that it's good to have people who will be supportive, and then um, then get to the people who are going to give you what you need to know about the thing. And I find along the lines of what Jane was saying is that it, when you get when you're getting notes from people, no matter what it is, with like there are there are some exceptions, of course, that oftentimes there's at least something valid behind the point that the person is saying that maybe they can't articulate it well, but mm -hmm. you can look back and try to find um, what the issue is and have a have a writer's group. I, I think that also helps like get stuff done. I, I have a friend who's hopefully in here today who we used to do a writer's group after episodes of Lost, so <laughs> I think it's a great way to have a, a set a set fixture of friends who, who write and who give notes. Yeah, uh, you know, this is, a, again, a gross generalization, but, you know, because it starts with there's two kinds of writers, but uh, essentially you're either a writer who will really benefit from sort of three months of meticulous planning or you're the kind of writer who given three months to write a pilot will actually start about a week before the end of the three months and 
I'm the I'm in the latter camp, and I you know even though I'm completely and totally aware of this, I fall into this trap time and time again. So television really ended up being great for me because you because you're provided with constant deadlines. And to that to that latter group, I would say find real deadlines. A deadline that you set for yourself. I will be done with this thing on May first is a bullshit deadline. But but a real deadline. This is where I think fellowships and and screenwriting competitions actually are very handy, which is if you have to have your script in to this screenwriting fellowship or 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 the nickel fellowship or whatever it is, by X date, that forces you that that's a real deadline versus a sort of illusory one where you can basically say, I did tell myself that it would be May first, but then I got sick. You know? <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna pay forwards that, you know. So it's just, you know, if, if you're gonna give yourself a deadline, all I would say is try to maybe find a way to make it a real one and maybe it's even what what the uh, conglomeration of what these guys are saying, which is if you have a writers group and you and you guys basically say we are going to convene on this date and and in a week before this date we are going to exchange material so that on this date we can actually be in a position to notes each other, then that's a real deadline versus one that you just set for yourself. I would add too, um, work with a partner. You know, if it's just about doing the work, it's embarrassing to not be doing any work when your partner is doing some work. <laughs> you know, you can be shamed into writing very easily. Uh, we have time for one more. This better be an awesome question. It might be. <laughs> That's the kind of confidence I expect. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just, as TV writers, have you been able to leverage other mediums um, like, the internet, um, like the internet to further expand the universe of your stories and to develop the stories and the characters? How have you used uh, other media? Boiling it down, right? Yeah, we, I wrote the webisodes for Battlestar. And the award-winning webisodes. Award winning. Well, no, award-nominated. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and that I wish we had done those earlier in the run, because those were actually shot as they were tearing the sets down. Like, we kept limiting what sets we could use based on what hadn't been bulldozed yet. Um, and I felt like that... We, we, Gaeta and, and Hoshi, like they were characters that we didn't, had known nothing about that we then learned more about in those webisodes. And so, yeah, absolutely, you can expand and learn about your characters. My favorite kind of episode for a regular broadcast TV show is the episode that takes like a tertiary character and makes them the star of the episode. Webisodes are born for that, it's perfect for that. So, I, I love it. And I think it's a great way to, um, to, to explore little bits, little pockets and fun bits of your show that you normally don't get get to go into. Jump in. Good. Someone asked this last week, which I think is a great last question, but uh, what are you guys watching? What do you like on TV right now? What are they talking about in the room? Uh, but, you know, what's what's inspiring to you right now? Anybody want to go? We, uh, we talk a lot in our room about uh, Boardwalk Empire. Uh, True Blood comes up a lot. Walking Dead. Walking Dead, because, you know, we're just a bunch of nerds. Um, also, it's awesome. Um, uh, this is I, not the crowd for them. <laughs> no, I know you guys won't really. Uh, I'm catching up on Archer right now, which I think is fantastic, right? Uh, those are mine. I like Spartacus. Yeah. I think it's very cool. I think it's it's so much cooler than it gets credit for. It's like It's like... Everybody loved the show Rome. It's the same show, but but with like real people and blood and and <laughs> humanity. Oh, I love it. You know, for for me, the I was, you know, legitimately and totally all consumed by 
by working on the show for, you know, almost seven years and as a result missed, you know, these amazing shows. So as soon as, as soon as Lost ended, I got to have this experience that a lot of people were, were telling me that they had with Lost, which is they, they didn't jump on until the very end. So I was, you know, I watched Battlestar in its, in, in its entirety over the course of, I don't know what, four weeks. And then, and then I did Breaking Bad and then I did Breaking Bad and now I'm I'm four episodes shy of finishing The Wire, which is probably the like all, all this time is you know is like and and had I um, it, it was fascinating to watch these things because you know it gave me a sort of sense of perspective that I completely and totally lacked on my own show and I would have completely stolen from these shows in many many different ways. But then there are kind of these cool similarities and when you're not watching when you don't have to wait a week between episodes and go to the blogs to sort of like the the sort of the ebb and flow of I can't even I, I can kind of I have some sense of when the um of when uh, what the season finales on a show like Battlestar are but you're just you're just putting in a new disc or or downloading a new a new season onto your iPad so the idea of like it you know i i basically i didn't know your webisodes existed and then i got to the um i got to the mutiny and i was like why is Gata acting like this? Like, what? I feel like I missed something. I'm going to go on the internet and see if I missed something. And lo and behold, here's this, here's, you know, literally 45 minutes of programming that completely explains, you know, this massive sort of character thing that happened to him that I had not been exposed to. So, you know, so that, so that idea of digesting it as a Dickensian novel, yes. as opposed to the way that Dickens actually wrote, which is like, you know, you had to read Get Great Expectations, like, you know, weekly, and then when people didn't like the ending, he was like, "Well, it'll be different in the novel." <laughs> like, so I'm working on it, and uh, and and uh, so I've been playing catch up, and you know, and obviously, I think that we we I love reality shows, you know, like Top Chef and the and the Amazing Race, and um, and comedies like Modern Family and and Thirty Rock, and now Community. I'm obsessed with, um, you know, because I like to I like to watch what I have no hopes whatsoever of ever writing because if it's something that you have a hope of writing it's hard not to be an armchair quarterback and just sit back and let it wash all over you so it becomes vegetables and i want candy yeah, yeah i agree right. i watch a lot of comedy community oh my god the pen, the pen episode the pen episode was uh, <laughs> yeah. my favorite it's called the bottle yeah. episode. amazing do you guys want to come back at the end of april come talk to dan Harmon. <laughs> uh aaron what are you watching what are they talking about pretty much everything that everyone just said i watch a lot of half hour um, and then I watched Dexter and Friday Night Lights, and yeah. <laughs> nice last season. Uh, very sad. Uh, and Spartacus has been talked a lot about a lot in our writers' room, and and Vampire Eric on True Blood, but just specifically him. <laughs> uh, if we continue into May, if you guys buy enough tickets for April, we'll continue into May, and we'll get some Spartacus writers too. I talked to them recently. Oh yeah, get Steve in here. Steve yeah. is a, Steve's a Buffy Tonight. alum. Yeah. We're getting all the Buffies. Don't worry. <laughs> We're collecting all of you. Uh, so we need to thank uh, Barry and Ed, who made it sound great. Give them a round of applause. <laughs> Thanks to everyone at Nerdist Industries at Meltdown Comics. Thanks to 826LA. Uh, and thanks to these terrific panelists, Jane Espenson, Drew Z. Greenberg. <laughs> you can applaud now. Aaron Lee and Damon Lindelof. I don't want to. My name is Ben Blacker. We'll see you in April, I hope. Now leaving Nerdist.com.